On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about an interesting comment from Teresa Tam about vaccines, which may not be exactly what you thought when you were lining up to get your vaccine. We'll discuss what that means. And Don Robertson joins us. How much of an impact in the playoffs is it going to be for Canadian teams in the NHL not to have fans or even maybe home games? We'll discuss that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Maybe you have had your COVID vaccine by now, or at least the first part of it. Maybe not. Uh, Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're saying you're not going to get it. Maybe you've tried a thousand times to get through and haven't been able to get an appointment yet. Whatever your situation is, I think there's a comment that was made by Dr. Teresa Tam on the weekend that you will find fascinating. Really, really fascinating. Let me read you a first, uh, the first couple paragraphs from a report that was done by the Canadian press that will capture this. Here we go. Canada's chief public health officer reminded Canadians on Saturday that even those who are fully vaccinated remain susceptible to COVID-19. Speaking at a virtual town hall for Yukoners, Dr. Teresa Tam said the risk of asymptomatic infection and transmission is lower for anyone who receives two shots. Quote, but it's not absolute. There's a reduction in your risk of transmission, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate your risk of transmission. And it goes on from there. So to paraphrase, if I may, getting the vaccines will help, but they're not necessarily guaranteed to protect you. Getting your vaccine doesn't mean you don't get COVID. So what does that mean? Because this is a medical question for sure. We've certainly been under the impression that if you get your vaccines, you're good to go. But it also is a broader question than that. What does this mean going forward? If we all go out and get the vaccine, does this mean that we're not going to be allowed to return necessarily to normal life because the chance of COVID still exists? Is that what is that what's being said here? Is that what's the underlying message that we're getting? Or a hint of something that we will still maybe have to wear masks or we still might have to social distance or we still might have to have limits on other activities. I'm not sure what this is meaning or what this is setting us up for. Kara Zwiebel is the director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She joins us now. Kara, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I don't want to be the voice of skepticism and suspicion. I seem to take that role too often. But when I hear this, this sounds like a comment that's potentially setting us up for something that is less than a return to normal. Am I being overly paranoid here or do you hear some of that too? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think what I hear is actually a bit of, um, you know, a bit of truth, frankly, that, you know, that the vaccine is not, um, a silver bullet, but it does not eliminate all risk. And I, I guess it depends how you sort of interpret that message really depends on your perspective. I think that we've we've heard so many messages coming from government and public health officials that suggest that, um, you know, that we really can't go back to normal until we've, you know, beat COVID. Um, but I, I think we have to try and think back to when when this started. Um, and really, the idea was that we would not overwhelm our healthcare system. That was the goal initially of many of the restrictive measures that were put in place. This was a virus that was out there at the time. There was no vaccine. There was no known treatment. So we knew there was the potential to overwhelm our healthcare system, and we had to work to avoid that. 
Um, somewhere along the line, we sort of lost the plot and decided that we were going to try to, you know, um, eradicate this disease or, um, uh, you know, end up with no with no COVID. And I think what um, Dr. Tan's message is that that's not the place we're going to end up, right? This is going to be um, a, an ongoing threat or risk. To me, um, that doesn't mean that we can't reopen society. It means that we... It means that we have to incorporate COVID into the, you know, the, the thousands of other, frankly, threats, um, you know, diseases, communicable diseases, um, risks that we accept in life and that we, you know, we mitigate, we take steps to mitigate, uh, but we don't fundamentally change society because there is um, a disease out there. And especially if we know that the vaccines, while not effective at eliminating COVID, are effective, are very effective at preventing people from getting very sick and preventing people from dying. So in terms of preserving our hospital resources, that's, that, that's a very important piece of this. Uh, it, yeah, I, for sure. And I mean, we don't want to overwhelm our hospitals and we've been down this path. I, I just, uh, when you talk to people, when you hear people talking about going out and getting their vaccine and calling a hotline 500 times to try and get through or whatever else, the, the impression is with them that I keep hearing that they are expecting life to go back to normal, normal being the way it was before this. What this seems to be saying is maybe it will, maybe it won't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, we're going to have to have some conversations as, you know, as a country, you know, as provinces and cities about, you know, about, about what normal looks like and what, um, what we're prepared to return to. I do think that if there are, you know, a, a good critical mass of people who, um, who are largely kind of insulated from the risk of ending up in the hospital because of COVID, um, to me, that, you know, like I said, since that was one of the main things we were dealing with at the outset, that should be a good reason to to reopen. It doesn't mean that no one is going to get COVID. Um, and it doesn't mean that there won't still be some people who will get sick and who will die from it. But, you know, it is one of, of thousands of diseases that people, mm -hmm. Canadians, um, die from. It's a new one and it's scary and it certainly is a highly transmissible Um but, you know, they, they've said since the outset, really, that the vaccine is, is to prevent people from getting seriously ill. It doesn't prevent you from having the virus, and we don't yet know how effective it is at, um, at avoiding transmission. So, you know, even though we've been at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, we've been, you know, bombarded by questions from the media about, you know, vaccine passports and what can we do to, to get back to normal, let's let everyone you know, everyone who's been vaccinated should be able to, to go out and do things. I mean, one of the, the key things to remember here is that we still don't know if, if being vaccinated really means that you can't pass along the virus. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. During this pandemic, we have had a number of things done by governments in the name of trying to control the pandemic that we probably under other circumstances would have completely blanched at and lost our minds at things like allowing police to stop people and the possibility of vaccine passports and this and that and the other. Do you, do you see any possibility of those things continuing if the position is that even with vaccines, well, you're not really prevented fully from getting it, so we better keep these things in place. 
Um, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, anything is possible, but I, I would certainly hope that, um, you know, our our political leaders and eventually, you know, the, the electorate um, appreciate that even even if we can't completely eliminate the risk of COVID from society, as I think is is the case, I don't think we can, um, that doesn't justify these restrictions. These restrictions were there for, um, you know, to protect our most vulnerable. Um, they were there to um, to protect our healthcare system. And if we if we can, uh, you know, get to a point where our our healthcare system isn't, um, you know, at risk of being overwhelmed, um, then then I don't think the justification for um, for many of the restrictions that we've seen really um, continues to apply. I mean, the, the reason that we've had you know so many restrictions, particularly um, in Ontario, for example. Um, you know, it, it has been because of this concern about about ICU beds. And um, although the vaccine doesn't mean that you can't, that you still won't necessarily, you know, get the virus and that you um, you may be able to still transmit it, it is very, um, the, the studies have shown that it's very effective at keeping you out of the hospital. Um, and that's, you know, that's really what, um, you know, I think in this urgent situation, I think that's what, um, those that were responsible for working on these vaccines were most concerned about. Um, you know, th- this virus, I think, is here. It's with, it's with us. And um, I think many, you know, scientists have said this will become endemic eventually. It might be something like the common cold that, you know, people get it. And we know that many people who, who get COVID, um, you know, don't get very sick from it. Um, many people have it and are, are asymptomatic. So um, it's not you know, the virus itself that is, um, that, that we have to be concerned about. It's the, it's the consequences of people getting very sick and requiring um, lots of care and potentially dying. So I think that we, we just have to keep um, reminding ourselves that, that that was the justification for these things. And we, um, you know, we need to get to a point where, um, where we do go back to normal and individuals will have to decide for themselves what level of risk they're willing to take. You know, um, if, if we go back to normal and, and we, we don't have, you know, vaccine passports in, in restaurants and things like that, which I, I firmly believe we shouldn't have. Um, that means that when you go to a restaurant, you'll, you'll have to, you know, you'll have to think about that. It might be something that you think about. I'm going to be in a group of people who knows if someone has something that can be transmitted to me. If I've, gotten the vaccine, I can be relatively secure that I won't get very sick from the virus, but it doesn't mean that I won't get it and that I won't be able to transmit it to other people. See, I would have thought that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association would have wanted all these things pushed back as soon as possible, but uh, that's not the sense I'm getting. Oh, no, we we, we certainly do. Um, You know, I think that, um, and there are, you know, there's a a lot of different restrictions, and I think some of them... um, some of them make more sense than others. Some of them are more uh, related or rationally connected to um, to this goal of keeping people of, of keeping our healthcare resources um, our healthcare resources uh, intact. Certainly, a lot of the restrictions on on outdoor activities, where there there seems to be no um, no strong scientific evidence that that's how the virus is transmitted, that risk of transmission is very low outdoors. So those types of restrictions, I think, are very difficult to justify. Um, but but we certainly do want to see those things, you know, rolled back as, as soon as possible. Um, 
you know, we, we obviously recognize that uh, th- this concern about healthcare resources is obviously a valid one, and it's one that we need to take into account. And, and we've seen in some cases that, you know, relaxing measures too soon has maybe, you know, been the wrong choice. But um, with every measure that governments are putting in place, we've been asking them to, you know, to justify those restrictions. I think, you know, right now we see um, many of the Atlantic provinces are are prohibiting people from coming into the province, uh, you know, prohibiting other Canadians from coming into the province. I don't think there's a justification for doing that. Um, you know, at this point, um, there there are, you know, there's isolation requirements, there's testing available. Um, these are things that need to be considered. And when it comes to restricting rights that Canadians have, governments should be doing um, taking measures that are the least restrictive uh, as possible. And in many cases, that's not what's happening. So we we're certainly think that, uh, you know, many measures do need to be loosened um, sooner rather than later. Kara's um, Weeball. Sorry, we got to jump in. Unfortunately, yes, no, I wish we had a lot more time, but really appreciate your time today. Kara's Weeball from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is, though, Monday evening, and that means it is time for Don Robertson, who is the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys and the guy behind ComChoice Realty and the guy now behind the proposed Dundas Walk of Fame and uh, a guy who certainly, if such a thing happens, should have his own star on that one. Sir, how are you this evening? Great, Scott. How are you? I am okay. Which, uh, where is your star going to be? Have you picked the spot yet? It's all location, location, location. You real estate people know that stuff. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I would suspect if there ever was one, it would probably go under a piece of gum because that's how small it'll be. <laughs> well, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure I'm worthy of a full-size one. There's some pretty, pretty great people uh, that have been contributors and from the valley town and made their contributions so we'll see the list is growing i'll tell you you start talking about this stuff as you know and uh the names start popping out and you start going wow didn't know about him and you know what he did and it's very interesting i i think you're i think you're being a little self-deprecating i mean it's a long street even if it gets filled i mean you could be on the sidewalk somewhere up by the you know flamborough golf and country club at the very least <laughs> Probably closer to Copetown Woods would be more suitable. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Oh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you taking some time again this Monday. Um, a lot of stuff I want to get to today, and uh, we're just reading a story during the news break with Bill Daly, the uh, assistant, the deputy commissioner of the NHL, talking. They don't even know when the playoffs are starting at this point because of COVID issues and stuff. They're saying now. The U.S. teams could start this weekend. They could start as early as Saturday, their playoffs. And the Canadian teams might be nine days from now. So sometime next week, later in the day after the last regular season games ends. But, Don, here's the thing. One way or another, Canadian teams, it looks like, are going to have no fans. And probably after the Canadian division ends, when they get to whoever comes out of the semifinals, is going to have to probably move the team across the border. That that seems like a real possibility now and play out of an American city or at the very least play in a Canadian city, but again, with no fans. Meanwhile, the teams that they're going to face in the semifinals, whichever team comes out of Canada, is going to, it looks like, very likely 
have a lot of fans in the arena cheering for them. How much of a disadvantage is that going to be to a Canadian team? Uh, it won't be helpful. It, what will be helpful, at least if they could play in their home arena, because you know then their life will be more along the lines of what they've been used to the entire season. You know, for the most part, I, I can't imagine that uh, the Leafs have spent any more time in a hotel than they would normally have, but half their time should be at home or more than half their time. <clears throat> but once the playoffs start, you know, if they have to go to the U.S., then they're going to be living out of a hotel or going to be away from their family, and they won't be playing in their home rink with or without fans. And this would be interesting. For example, um, Columbus is, is going to miss the playoffs. And I, I don't know if I know and I've forgotten or I don't know at all how they're going to determine what who the Canadian division play. Will it, will it be if, if, for example, Edmonton win, will they play the West? And if Toronto win, will they play the East? That would put three teams in the East, so I doubt it. But let's, for example, say uh, for good luck that the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, win the Northern uh, Division, which might not be a stretch, that clinched first place, and they went to Columbus or they went to Buffalo because it's handy. And But there's if they let fans in, if they sell tickets, there's a good chance they wouldn't be Leaf fans. I mean, if they played in Buffalo and because Toronto's arena was for some reason unusual under normal circumstances, it would be full of Leaf fans because they drive and cross the border. That can't happen. So if they're selling, if, if, if the Canadian team, again, presumably it may be the Leafs, have to go to another city and they play in somebody else's building and they live in a hotel and the home crowd would not be friendly. It's an interesting scenario, but I don't suspect um, at this point that they're going to let U.S. teams come back and forth into Ontario when we can't even go out and golf and play tennis. So yeah, I think the answer very, very highly and like likely. I think the answer, if I understand it right, is once the four teams emerge from their various divisions, it will be based on regular season points. Who plays who? One, the team that. Out of those four that survive, the team that was highest will play the team that was lowest and second and third. I think that's how they're planning to do it, but um, I could be corrected on that one, but that I heard that somewhere along the way. You know, one thing I would love to see, and I don't think this will happen, but surely the technology exists. I would lo- If you can have fans in Florida or wherever else these games are going on, I would love to see the Leafs do something, and the Canadians too, and Edmonton and Winnipeg too, where you could have fans connecting to the game through Zoom so that at the very least you wouldn't even see the fans, but the fans could cheer. So you could get honest vocal responses from 15, 20, 30,000 Leaf fans pumped into the arena as if they were sitting there. They can't be in the seats, but at least you get the honest, not boxed reaction. I think that would be great. That would be one way to at least let the at least give some sort of home ice advantage. If it's a Canadian team and they did that through Zoom, and I don't know how big the capacity for Zoom is, but if it were the Leafs, um, there could conceivably be a million fans. You would have to assume, if they could ever do it through television, that everybody watching the game, if you have a smart TV, your reaction could be heard. 
Yeah, I don't, I mean, look, I, I don't know whether it's Zoom or some other technology or whatever. I don't know how it works, but it seems to me that that would at least provide an equal playing field somehow to the American teams that will have fans in the stands. And I mean, look, Don, you and I both know you've been a referee and you, you've refereed some reasonably high level games. I mean, some very high level games. I, I refuse to accept that referees who are human beings cannot be affected by crowd reaction. And that to me is one of the areas where the Canadian team, when they emerge out of this stands to lose most that when you have the crowd on the official or not on the official, I really do think that counts for something in a game. Uh, I'd like to think, no, I'd like to think at that level, it doesn't matter, but if you're going to have to play, if you're going to have to win eight games down there, I wouldn't tell you that it would be zero effect. I mean, I don't think it would be easily to pick up, easy to pick up, but I certainly don't want to tell you that it it's foolproof because you know, if, if in fact you're right, and that is a high level, a level I never officiated at, but those guys are pretty good, but they're human beings. And yes. if they're, if they're uh, refereeing a game in Toronto with no fans, there's not much there to intimidate you other than your own, other than your own standards and the supervisors and, and the officials, you know, if there was a sniff of that boy, that guy'd be in trouble. But here's the, it's not even the intimidation. It's the, Okay, a guy is skating out of his end and uh, the opponent kind of gets his stick in the way, but kind of doesn't. And you're sort of thinking, I'm going to let that one go. It's not really a penalty. And immediately the crowd screams. I am convinced that there are times when that hesitation, that split second decision about, do I let that go? That I saw something that may or may not be a penalty. That's when the crowd can have an impact on you and you go, yeah, I better put the hand up. And it's not, you're not even thinking, you don't have time to think about it. It's just, they all saw it. So it must've been something. Yeah. I, I won't discount it. I mean, I, like I said, I hope not, but they are human beings and it will be a challenge that they have never faced before. Let's put it that way. And I, one thing I'm pretty sure they won't do is because it like crossed my mind when I was out <laughs> thinking, cutting the grass and, um, I guess if Toronto was playing Vegas, they can't play all the games in Vegas. That would be a distinct disadvantage, unless they didn't let any fans in for the for the Toronto home games, which would be bizarre. So it'll be interesting because if, you're right. If they do have to play in another building, and they do sell tickets, because you know they're all about money, they if they can sell fifteen thousand tickets. They're going to sell fifteen thousand tickets. But how bizarre would that be if the Toronto Maple Leafs are in the Final Four? And for example, playing out of Buffalo, and there's 15,000 people there, and the Canadian team has to play in the U.S. because we won't let uh, 20, 40 people in a bubble come to Toronto and play, but they can play in Buffalo with 15,000 people there. Boy, that's Lucy's got some explaining to do as to how that works. It is. It is such a shame, and I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in the paper. It is such a shame that after, I think the last time the Leafs and Canadians played was in a playoff series was 78 or 79, that you're finally going to have these two franchises face off against each other and you can't have fans in the building, you can't have fans at Maple Leaf Square, you can't have fans gathering in bars or at people's homes. 
it, it's just it's it's such an unbelievable disappointing scenario that at this moment when this finally happens that this is the time when this is not allowed to be fully enjoyed i i, I it's it's almost predictable in the murphy's law line of things but it's just it's so sad that this is where we are well i would tell you that this is the last time in our lifetime that toronto and uh Montreal could ever face each other in the playoffs. But I might have told you that uh, two years ago, too. So I guess uh, in, in today's world, you never say never. But you're right. Um, when Toronto was in the West, remember when uh, Kresge two-handed uh, Dougie Gilmore in the face and there was no call long enough ago to make that decision that it was a two-hander in the face. But uh, that was, you know, they could have played Montreal and then, Toronto went in the East. So that ended that, that that great rivalry could ever play in the Stanley Cup finals again. And uh, it's, it's gone this year. And it's, you're right. It's sad that it can't happen. I, you know, it's, it's a lot of sad things going on to these days, but we're looking near the end of it, but it would be nice if at least the Canadian team could play out of their own building and the government say, yep, it's, it's our game. And it's the Stanley Cup semifinals, and the American teams are going to fly up on a charter, get on a bus, quarantine, like, you know, they're going to go right to their hotel and then just to the arena. That seems pretty safe to me, but then so does golfing with 150 people over 12 hours on 180 acres. So they're not calling me for advice. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, we saw this week, we saw a couple things, well, last week, I guess, uh, that were incredible. One was Austin Matthews getting his 40th, 40th goal in 50, whatever number of games it was. And then we saw Connor McDavid get his 100th point in 53 games. And, you know, I, I recognize that what I'm about to say to some is going to seem a little like sacrilege, but is it now fair to compare... Connor McDavid to Wayne Gretzky. I mean, you can never compare in the past. You never would say, okay, he's like Wayne Gretzky. Nobody is like Wayne Gretzky, but considering that Wayne Gretzky played at a time when there were more points, the game was more wide open, that it guys scored more points, not like him, but you now have Connor McDavid doing something very, very similar. Is it a fairer comparison now? Well, if you want to talk about greatness, I mean, it's not a bad conversation to have. Um, I remember one year uh, people said Gretzky only had a lot of points because he had a lot of assists. And then the next year he said, hold my beer, and he went out and scored 92 goals and got 212 points. And I don't see anybody doing anything like that again. Um, Has the game changed yet? Has uh, does that make Rick Vibes' uh, 350 goal seasons in a row more significant, though, because the goal, goal scoring wasn't quite as high then? Um, so that's always the that's always the challenge when you talk about different generations and how the game has changed. The clutching and grabbing's gone. You know, there was all kinds of clutching and grabbing when Gretzky played, and if McDavid played in that era. I wonder how he would make out. Now, he is the fastest guy on the planet on a pair of skates, and he's got skill coming out the yin-yang. So, you know, he can play in any era. But, I mean, Kresge got 212 points in 80 games. 
Uh, McDavid's got 153, and he's not done yet. But is that a tremendous accomplishment? Absolutely. Does uh, does it look like um, Austin Matthews would have smashed Vibes' record? Probably. But he hasn't yet, and the record still stands. So, yeah, I don't know. I think he's in the conversation, Scott. But there was only ever one Gretzky and one Orr. And, were, and look, I've both, never changed the game. I've never asked this question before because I've always thought it was unfair and it, it sounds ludicrous. And I mean, if you go through the pros and cons of the argument, I mean the 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 thing that's more difficult for Connor McDavid right now, as I say, is the goalies are infinitesimally better. I mean, they are so much better than they were back in the seventies and eighties. So it's harder to score a goal, and um, you don't have guys taking two and two and a half minute shifts. So, you know, the, like your chances to, to score are less and, and certainly the, you know, the, but the flip side is Wayne Gretzky, you're right. The clutching and grabbing was there. And also because of the way the game was played, then Wayne Gretzky was a target. So they had to play a guy like Dave Semenko or Marty McSorley on his line all the time that Connor McDavid doesn't need. Connor McDavid can have two very skilled wingers playing with him at every time. Wayne Gretzky had one skilled winger playing with him, which was Yari Curry, and then a guy who kept his face from being punched in. So he was he was playing sort of shorthanded compared to Connor McDavid. There's there's arguments on both sides of the equation, is my point. Yes, and if you look at Matthews and Marner, they're always picking what skilled guy gets that plum assignment. Right, so you, I I hadn't included that in my remarks because it hadn't crossed my mind, but that's that's an even better point. Gretzky basically basically played on a, a two player line. Now that said, Semenko probably got twenty three, thirty four, twenty five, twenty eight, th- okay, thirty by virtue of I'll just go to the net and bang a few in off me. Like, so would Semenko get thirty goals with anybody else? Dave Semenko would not have gotten 30 goals in his career if he had not probably played on that team. Um, uh, let's see here. Dave Semenko, he never had 30 in a season. Uh, he had uh, 10, 11, 12, 12. Um, you know, he, he put some points up, but he, he also had a million instead penalty minutes. But Instead of two. you get Instead of two. Instead of two. Yeah. Instead of two. So what's, I, I don't, who plays with McDavid now? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, um, what's the name of the German guy? Um, oh, you're asking me, I'm drawing a complete blank here on his name right now. Um, you know what, that, what, well, that's my point. Marner and Matthews play together. Now, is that because, do I know that because, you know, there's an inordinate amount of leap games on TV and I can't stay up to watch the Oilers play much anymore. But what I'm saying is, Dreisaitl, but they're not in the same. Dreisaitl, thank you. But yeah, but doesn't he? He plays on his own line most of the time. No, he's they're spent a lot of the year. Play. Yeah, he spent a lot of the year with with McDavid this year, and that 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 certainly helps. And certainly on the power play, the two guys together. I mean that that uh, that cranks up the point totals. I mean, watching that game the other night when McDavid got to his hundredth point. There was they got up they got a two man advantage at one point and you they may as well have just said okay we're you know in baseball now where you don't actually have to throw the pitches to for the four pitch walk where they're intentionally walking a guy you can just show the four fingers and say walk to first that's kind of what should have been done in this one 
rather than play out the thing, just go, okay, we're giving you the goal. Let's just go to center ice and carry on because this is a foregone conclusion. With those two guys, it was a foregone conclusion. Well, yes. And the other way that I, I mean, I know we're talking about the regular season, but if we're talking comparisons and, and, you know, you said, can we start having a conversation about McDavid and Gretzky now? You know when you can have a real conversation about McDavid and Gretzky? When McDavid's team wins two playoff rounds. Like Gretzky won Stanley Cups. He took Good LA point. to a Stanley Cup, and they had no more business going to the Stanley Cup than Dundas Real McCoys. With, without Gretzky, they probably don't win. Does Gretzky make not only players around him better, did he make his team better? Absolutely. And until guys do that, including Matthews and everybody else, uh, you know, the two guys in uh, in Chicago have done that. Oh, boy. The one kid isn't playing, and the other Kane kid... Kane and Taves. Yeah, like, they, they did that. They elevated the Chicago Blackhawks, and to say they carried them on their back would be misleading, but Gretzky was able to do that in his prime, and he made L.A. a contender. He made him a lot of fun, but he made him a contender. So when David McDavid has done that, and uh, um, as, as Ma, Aston, Austin Matthews has done that, then we can have a real conversation about it. Bobby Orr did it. Yeah, I'll say one more thing. One more thing in the debate, though, and, and one more thing to McDavid's credit, and I think this is something that gets lost here because whenever we compare, I believe that the only way to compare players from different eras is to compare them against their peers. Uh, comparing Gretzky to Austin Matthews or to Connor McDavid, it's not fair. They're different people, different technology, different nutrition, different everything. How was Wayne Gretzky compared to his peers? How was McDavid compared to his peers? Gretzky, you're right, he, he won the scoring title by, you know, 80 points, 90 points. I mean, it was insane what the, the difference was. Well, if you look at this year, Connor McDavid's at 100 points. Austin Matthews has had a magnificent, unbelievably fantastic season and he has 65 points. McDavid is 35 points ahead of him. And it, it, it's sort of, it's mind-blowing when you consider if the comparison is how do you do against the guys who are playing at the same time. Uh, you know, I think the I think the comparison with Gretzky becomes a little more fair. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm probably not to the point where I would say that I'm okay saying he is the same as Gretzky. I don't believe that. But I don't think the argument is ludicrous now. Well... Gretzky won a cha- scoring championship one year and mo- had more assists than the second place uh, guy. That's how much he dominated. Different era, but he when he dominated, he dominated. Well, I mean, Connor, Connor McDavid this year would have fit would have so right as of right now would win the scoring title just based on his assists. Well, there you go. Then he's as good as Gretzky. <laughs> <laughs> Point made. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson of, well, of Dundas fame. I don't even need to specify, just of Dundas fame. He is Mr. Dundas. You should get a tattoo to that effect. Just get Mr. Dundas yeah. right across your back like your nameplate on your hockey sweater. I'll put it right beside Mr. Perfect. Well, that was it. You can't use that one because that was Paul Orndorff from the 1980s WWE. Mr. Perfect. No, 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 that was not. No, that wasn't. He was Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. Mr. Perfect was Kurt Henning. Uh, Shows you how much wrestling. Uh, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. I'll tell you a funny story, Don. Years ago, before we had kids, 
my wife and I were newly married and we went down, we got a, remember the, the last minute club? Remember that travel agency called the yeah, last minute yeah. club before yeah. you had computer things and everything. We got a last minute club trip and went down to Florida and we were walking through the orange blossom mall. And all of a sudden I turned to her and I say, there's Mr. Perfect. <laughs> Weird thing to say to your wife. <laughs> Yeah. And it was it was Paul or <laughs> it was Paul Orndorff, the former wrestler, who had been known as Mister Perfect, and he has uh, he was sort of limping through the Orange Blossom Mall, and I was uh, shocked at how little he was, considering back when he was on TV fighting Hulk Hogan and those guys, he was enormous. He was enormous, yeah. and I guess he just s- slowed down the workouts or something. Anyway, did your wife properly? I don't have a tattoo, by the way. Did your wife? Po- properly respond and say i married mr perfect uh, she didn't she was very puzzled by my uh, by my <laughs> comment <laughs> Un- unsurprisingly uh, i hadn't really hadn't thought the whole thing through before spouting that one out uh, wanted anyway. to, wanted, i meant to say something before the break and of course we're not here so i can't tell how much time we got left i just want to remind everybody that connor mcdavid's first year in the ohl his training camp with the Erie Otters took place at the Morgan Firestone Arena. So Ancaster will always have a small tie to McDavid. That is very true. And you know who and you know who it was who did the first interview with Connor McDavid as a junior hockey player? Scott Bradley. There you go. Because because of training camp in uh in Ancaster. So yes, so and I've I've reminded my son of that several times. Every time he thinks dad is a bit of a schlub who, you know, I remind him, hey, but you know. I did the first interview with Connor McDavid, so take that. Doesn't really seem to work much to uh, impress him. Um, Don, I, on the weekend, I don't know if you're a horse. Are you a horse racing fan at all? Almost always watch Kentucky Derby because my dad loved horses and it was a bit of a staple, and I, I didn't watch this year. Okay, so this year, and people are probably aware of where I'm going with this because we don't talk about horse racing ever on this show and that's kind of the point um the horse was named medina or medina medina i think medina spirit and it's it was trained it is trained by bob baffert who is probably i think unquestionably the most famous trainer in horse racing white shock of hair and you you would know him to see him anyway uh yesterday or the day before they come out and announced that it had tested positive for a steroid that is sometimes used to help with pain and of course the trainer is saying I didn't give him anything. And now the amazing story is that a jockey peed on a bunch of hay that was near the stall and he had taken some um, cold medication and that's how the horse got it into his system. It's a terrific story. Uh, Don't know if it's true. Nonetheless, Don, I wonder, you know, horse racing has fallen into that. It's the nichest of niche markets now for sports fans. You are either a, a racing fan or you don't watch. Once upon a time, as you say, everybody watched the Kentucky Derby. Everybody. Didn't matter if you were into it or not, you watched. And I'm wondering if this kind of story, even though it's a steroid story and it's a doping and all the rest, I'm wondering if this is the best possible thing that could happen to horse racing because it gets people talking about it again. It's like boxing, eh? It used to be a huge sport for television and conversation, and the racing was a very integral part of, uh, you know, entertainment because there wasn't a lot of it. 
I, I can't see how it's going to hurt it. I mean, every, every sport have their scandals now. I thought you were going to tell me the, uh, the trainer was Dr. Jamie Astafin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. And, Char- and Charlie Francis was the, was the jockey. Was it? Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of what they did with Ben Johnson, which is what we're referring to when we talk like that. It was, uh, it was somebody else that did it or the dog ate my homework, but interesting that they're, they, I mean, he, he's going to try and get out of it, obviously, because it's a credibility issue for him. We've talked many times. Um, sometimes you say, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. But to answer your question, yeah. I mean, horse racing is uh, has its challenges anyway. Um, I often see former uh, Flamborough Real McCoy, Jim Lawson, being quoted, who is now the CEO and is from Hamilton of um, Woodbine Entertainment, you know. And and they and he's doing a good job. They try and remain relevant, but boy, it's a challenge, and especially in these times. So the quick answer is yes. Yeah, I, I you know, as I say, I I will occasionally, if one of those big races, the Belmont or Kentucky Derby, if it's on TV and I'm flipping channels, and there's nothing else on, I'll see it and I'll stop in and watch it i I, i've never been a horse racing fan i've never been an aficionado of it i don't you know i don't have any reason to hate it i just don't i just never got into it and i look at this and i think it's probably the worst possible thing to have these doping scandals in any sport and yet in this one i almost think that if anything you can do to try to get yourself noticed anything you can do to get yourself noticed is a good thing now you know having the most famous trainer in the world whose face and appearance is pretty much synonymous with all the best horses. I'm not sure that's great, but you know, it's, well, let's, um, let's put it this way. Nobody was going to care if the fifth place team tested positive or the fifth place horse. I mean, it had to be the winner and it's, it's, it's in all the papers. It's, uh, it, it's, it's put the Kentucky Derby, into the conversation now, you know, it'll be in the conversation all week and they haven't had that in years. So I'm sure it wasn't planned, but you're right. You mean, you may as well try and, uh, try and make something out of it. Here's the other part about this now is if you are horse racing, if, and I mean, I don't know who is horse racing. If you are the govern, if you're the governing body of horse racing as a point of, um, attention grabbing do you allow medina spirit to race in the next big race i think it's the belmont knowing that people in horse racing are going to lose their minds this to me becomes the question of the whole we talked last week about tom wilson and the vancouver or the washington capitals and suspended or not suspended the fact that he was not suspended made that next game must watch hockey and everyone across the states apparently was tuning in to see the highlights of the brawls but that's all anybody talked about. If you are horse racing, even if you think this horse is filthy and was shot up with all kinds of stuff, I'm almost saying we're going to put off our decision until afterwards because, look, we've got too many eyeballs that we could attract to TV for this one to turn away by saying this horse can't run. That would seem to be a lost opportunity, even if ethically, morally, all the rest, it's the right thing to do. Do you think all the other horses will jump them out of the gate? (laughs) 
the jockeys will just start whipping on the trainer with their with their switches. No, no, but I be, be, be a brawl in the paddock before the race. There might be a brawl in the stands with all the well dressed owners. Um, yeah, you know, and, and mess with me. Yeah, I, I, I just think that again, you've got a sport that has been shuffled to the very, very back of the relative uh, of the relevance standings, I guess, in the world of sports, except for those who are really into horse racing. I mean, the, the people who are really into horse racing, they, they you know, they got their own views and they're going to watch anyway, but for all well, the casual or non-casual fans, do you want to watch the next race? If this horse is running that may be steroided up probably a lot more than if he wasn't running. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm sure you're about as familiar with the, the racing discipline handbook as I am based on your comments, but uh, I'd be pretty surprised that if, if he's found, well, they've already said he tested positive. You would have to think there's some kind of a suspension for the trainer who they probably don't need because the horse can either do it now or he can't. And the horse, like Ben Johnson was suspended. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that there's a manual saying if you test positive, you have a one year suspension or, I, I haven't read that. I mean, perhaps you've yeah. read more about it than me. You would think it's kind of automatic unless sure they can the... appeal it, right? In baseball, if you get suspended as a pitcher or any player, you can appeal the suspension and keep playing. If you're the horse, though, do you want to appeal? Your choice is to run another race with a jockey sitting on you, hitting you in the butt with his switch, or going to a field and being a stud for a whole bunch of girl horses. <laughs> Suspend me. I'm out. I did it. I'm gone. Don't let me run again. Just put me out to pasture. I mean, it, it seems like the other alternative <laughs> is pretty good for that horse. <laughs> well, it's something in my youth I aspired to, but it never happened. <laughs> That's um, right. If this, if this was Mr. Ed, he'd be like, I'm sorry. I did it. Put me away and <laughs> bring out the fillies. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this Great, poor horse. You doing, Mister Ed? <laughs> this poor horse. This is the real punishment. Is making him run again, not not giving him a suspension. Is making him run again. That's uh, his life would be so much better if he was doing the other one. Oh well. And, talking about horse racing, you know, anybody that's met me knows there's not much chance I've been a jockey recently. Uh, uh, I will not comment on that at all. <laughs> Maybe in Brontos, maybe in Brontosaurus races. <laughs> you couldn't leave it, could you? I knew you. <laughs> I tried. I tried. Yeah. I didn't say anything about being a jockey. Uh, Don Robertson, <laughs> always love having you on on Monday evenings. We do this every Monday. Thanks for taking the time tonight. All right, Scott, it was a fun show. Thank you very much. Have a good week. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.